Hello, and welcome back to TPI's podcast, To Think Minimum. I'm Chris McGurn, TPI's Director of Communications. Each week on this podcast, we facilitate a conversation between TPI fellows and special guests on some of the most pressing and important issues in tech policy and tech politics. Today, we have with us Rob Pigararo, who is a tech journalist of longstanding in the D.C. area and has been covering uh, technology and the intersection of technology and politics for close to about 20 years now, if not longer. We're happy to have him with us, given that he's one of Washingtonian's tech titans from 2015 to 2017, and he would be the perfect guest to have in to talk about the evolution of tech in D.C. over the past 10 years, because TPI is also celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. Without further ado, I want to welcome in also TPI Research Fellow and Scott Walston, TPI Senior Fellow and President, to have a conversation with Rob on all things tech and policy. So, Rob, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Scott and Sarah, feel free to jump in whenever you want. One question I want to get right off the bat is with all the talk this week about Mark Zuckerberg on the Hill and Facebook, you know, kind of being dragged before the the hearings in the House and the the Senate. I thought he just came to D.C. for the cherry blossoms. Was Uh, I misinformed? He should have. He usually does, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I ran into him at Potbellies for lunch, actually. So you've been covering this space for a long time. Where have you seen some of the big trends that jump in your mind? If someone says, in the last 10 years of tech, what jumps out at you? So the last 10 years, I guess, because it used to be there was just no connection at all. And then Microsoft in the 1990s. And then after that, Google sort of learned that lesson a bit. And they've staffed up and now have a lot of office space around town. Facebook has gone in that same progression. The, The first Facebook office I met anybody at in D.C. was an upper floor in a townhome around DuPont School that had been converted into offices. And they moved to a slightly larger space, I think around like uh, 9th and F, 14th and F. And I can only imagine how many people they have based in D.C. now and are working in D.C. full time. So it's like there's this, you know, I guess you don't need to do it by the time of your, your Series A fundraising round. But, right. you know, but definitely by the round after that, if you have anything that involves data, you should have somebody in D.C. And also it's important that you have enough money to make an office with distressed wood. and um, Yeah, you, know, you got to have it. It's got to show up in a little, you know, profile somewhere exactly. in Washington or whoever. <laughs> People do that. Now, the question is, are, are these companies, are they just trying to sort of make sure laws they don't like don't get passed? Or are they they trying to advocate for change? Like we mentioned Google, a lot of their time is, you know, they like to have their advertising business free to run as they wish. They've also advocated for measures to ensure that the government cannot, like, go grab your email by asking nicely for it. Let me ask, since, since, yeah. we, since we started off by talking about Zuckerberg's appearance, Facebook does have a fairly big operation out here now, as, they, as you'd expect, given their size. What is that office doing now? With respect to Zuckerberg, and I assume, you know, their biggest job would have been to make sure he doesn't appear at all. But that's right. probably never an option in this case. If he does so, appear, make sure they don't have the picture of him raising his right hand. Uh, you know. Right. So what, are, like, what do you think there's, is going well, on? A lot of what they've done, they're in a unique position because, I guess, it's Facebook and Twitter. The other reason they have a DC office is just marketing, lead generation. Mm-hmm. Get people to use your platform. You know, get people to show up on Twitter. You know, you never know what promising presidential candidate will make Twitter his own unique platform in a way yeah. that... No one has done before, and hopefully no one ever will afterwards. That's historically been part of their job as well. And like Google, they don't quite need to sell the product to individual senators and representatives the way Facebook and Twitter will. Yeah, otherwise, one thing I'd love to see is how the workflow for somebody who works for Facebook differs if they're based here or in Brussels, because mm-hmm. the EU has a totally different privacy environment. Like They actually have meaningful regulation about privacy. Some might say it's it's too much, but at least it exists, whereas here outside... Facebook has to operate with a yeah. Choice. Right. Exactly. If you do it with the data of EU residents, then you got to play ball by the rules. 
Yeah, and not only between D.C. and Brussels, but we sort of have this ongoing conversation in this office that the D.C. folks for these major companies are not always looked at in the highest regard from headquarters back, you know, and still. Yeah, Valley. that's Just, a good point. And I think that comes back to originally D.C. kind of held off on tech and they didn't really go after them. And now, you know, like you mentioned, Microsoft and Google, they're starting to realize that they do actually have to play this game as well. And I think that has a lot of the people in the idealistic, you know, ground zero of these companies really the wrong way. So it's interesting to see the dynamic between the D.C. office and the, the headquarters folks when they come into town. I remember very much going to a tech policy event, the uh, Tech Policy Summit in 2012. It was at this lovely resort in Napa. Great, great conference all around. And at one point, one of these idealistic libertarian Silicon Valley types is saying, we just want government to leave us alone. And it was me and the late great Stephen Wilder of Business <laughs> Week were there. And, and Steve was like, that's not going to work. The people whose industries you're trying to disrupt, they're not going to leave you alone. And they're really good at working the reps. So if you want to make the change, you know, in, in the market you want to see happen, then you had better get familiar with flights to the D.C. area from the Bay Area. Do you think, well, they're sort of reaping some of the consequences of not paying sufficient attention? Or, or have they sort of steadily been getting better? Facebook, it's sort of hard to read because in some areas, like I compare how they handle the traditional definition of information security. Are you the person who should be logging into the account? You know, is, is, you know, how can we make sure no one is impersonating you? And they've been pretty good at that. They've hired very good people. They have a good two-step verification system. You know, they take steps to ensure that even if you're on an old Android phone, they're not going to just accept any random login. But if you're on a social network, InfoSec can't only be in terms of authentication. And then once you're on, it's all good. And so the way they've responded to what you could call social engineering at scale has not been as astute and smart and appropriately cynical. And so you've seen some of that in the recent testimony Facebook has had where we were an idealistic company. Yeah, you were, but you should be aware that bad people use the internet too. And Twitter's done the same thing. And a lot of it also goes into when you look at how Twitter has responded to harassment on their platform. A lot of the, the systems they, they've done, you know, I've seen this as a white dude using Twitter. You can write mean things about Gamergate. People don't actually issue you death threats. You know, they, they talk endlessly. Gamergators cannot shut up. So the other issue, this was this argument like three years ago about how video game journalism was unfair, which weirdly enough got tied up with people who also thought like women and minorities should not have offer any value judgments about games at all. <laughs> and if you're a woman or a minority and you talk about these issues, then you have a different experience. And you have to think that if more people doing the basic architecture of these systems realize what it was like to be swarmed by a bunch of people, they might design them in a different way. So do you think they had any response to the problem that was sufficient given the magnitude of the problem? Or did they just ignore uh, wait, it? Wait, are we talking uh, Facebook or Twitter? Well, we have I, I, I guess which, right, which when I social they, networks are we failing? Well, let's, uh, today. <laughs> which one did you think it, the problem was worse on? You could say in this case, Facebook, because mm-hmm. it involves not just, you know, we're sort of used to people being jerks or malicious on mm-hmm. one platform or another for money to rip somebody off because they're bigoted. Uh, how that be part of a nation state's campaign is something like, I mean, I hadn't really thought about that. That's sort of new in my experience. And that's where Facebook's initial response to Cambridge Analytica is awful. You know, they, they found out that, first of all, they designed a system where you could write an app and it could make a really big request for your data. It could scoop up your friend's data. And it was all based on, well, we'll kick bad actors off the platform. That is a very brittle system and it's going to fail. And it did fail. And when they found out, well, this guy, Alexander Kogan, posted this personality quiz app, then he handed the data to a third party explicitly in violation of the rules. Mm-hmm. Did they name and shame him? Did they alert the users who got you know ripped off in this way? No. And this was after they'd signed a 20-year settlement regime with the Federal Trade Commission. So that's where, you know, somebody in the D.C. office should 
have told somebody in the Bay Area office, you cannot just let this go. You know, that's where they, they should have taken action. And it's... Of course, it's conceivable they did and were ignored. Right. Well, I think at this point they would have told us. You know, the, the fact that right. they, they shook their... their shook their fist at Cambridge Analytica and said, you, you have to give us your word, you'll delete this data. Really? I mean, they didn't have that many roles, but it was very clear. You can't say you're, you're posting a quiz for this reason, and then you're going to use your app for a totally different one. And that's the point where I've had some, I guess they're fans of the current president, say, well, the Obama campaign did the same thing. No, they didn't. It was an explicitly an app for the Obama campaign help reelect the president. It wasn't, you know, what sex in the city character are you? And oh, by the way, do you like President Obama? So all campaigns use sophisticated yeah. data analysis. And uh, the Hillary Clinton's campaign was going to unveil their sophisticated analysis system of analytics after she won the election. And of course, I'd that still like to see happen. that PowerPoint. You know, exactly. When, so was that the fundamental difference that they thought that they had a misleading way of getting the data or that they used the data to target misleading information? Well, in the Facebook rules context and also just basic, you know, ethics and, and even like, you know, U.S. law, you, you can't, if you say you're going to use data for a reason and use mm -hmm. it for another one, that can get you in trouble with the FTC. Not, not quickly, slowly. And in the Facebook context as well, you know, if you post an app, you know, you can't have a Trojan horse app that asks for all these personal details and then gets handed off to somebody's marketing machine. So yeah, that's, I don't know why they didn't do more. Mm -hmm. Maybe they, they sent a really, really vituperative email to the Cambridge people and we just haven't seen it yet. Uh, given the pace at which things have been leaking out of Facebook lately, I, I don't think there's, you know, if there was stuff that was going to make them look better, they would have brought that out already. So do you think it was an issue that they really didn't understand that there was an underlying problem? That they just assumed that people are volunteering photos and location and everything else that it's pretty much open market for everyone's personal data and they just didn't really I was comparing an email with somebody the other day. You know, if you installed an app on an Android phone a few years ago, you would see this, you know, list of permissions when you installed it and it was yes or no. If you don't like the permissions, then don't install the app. And you had to sort of make the snap judgment right then. Do you trust this app to get all this information? Or not. And they, they realized that was a brittle system as well. And so now an Android app, it has to ask for permission when it wants to do something like turn on the camera or turn on the microphone or access your location. And you can decline that permission. And the app may break. If it's written for an older version of Android, it probably will, which they introduced this in 2015. So certain app developers, Snapchat, should really get on the ball with that. The idea that you're going to expect everyday people to look at this list of requests for access to your data and think, let me Google this company. Have any of my friends install this? When Facebook system at the time, you know, even back then on Android, you could see these are the other apps from this developer in the same Play Store screen. Getting that sort of index of, is this a trustworthy application on Facebook? It's, it's bad. The well, interface is not helpful. One of the things that I'm struggling with is trying to figure out where exactly is the harm and whether it's that it's more just sort of a violation of trust as opposed to measurable harm or that, in fact, this data was then used to target misinformation. And that's a sort of a, a different kettle of fish, but a really big one. <laughs> yeah, my answer to that one might be yes. Because on the one hand, you know, if you find that somebody got information out of you under false pretenses, like, you know, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll like, you know, vote in an online poll at some blog. That's fine. I know what I'm doing. But duplicity is, is not cool. You know, it may not be illegal. It may or may not violate the rules of a social platform. But that that is not how a, a company that wants to be around for the long term, a developer that wants to be around for the long term, should treat the customer. But then, yeah, if you then use that and you use this to brand people's prejudices, feed them disinformation, I'm trying to use that word because you know, it relates to Soviet propaganda and I'm a child of the 80s. And <laughs> fake news has gotten ruined because President Trump uses that to describe news that is mean to me. Exactly. Right. 
I also struggle with this as well because you said false pretenses and trust, and these are fuzzy concepts mm-hmm. because it's hard for me to believe that they didn't know that people could use this data wrongly. It's a lot of data. It's personal data. They're scooping it up. Uber has all the data that where yep. we go. YouTube has all my data of what I watch. So I think that's the gray area, the trust. And I don't know about legislating rules trust. <laughs> How do you make Mark Zuckerberg more trustworthy well, with your data? It's a big question. I mean, what of the things that people have been discussing as remedies actually would be? Yeah, I mean, you would think that just in terms of self-defense against the inevitable data breach, data minimization is a good principle to, to write by. Don't get more information than you need, at least as if this was the case as of last weekend. Facebook's guidance to app developers and people using Facebook login explicitly said that. Don't ask for more data than you need. You know, our research has shown people are more inclined to trust you if you you don't make this laundry list request. But then I guess if you're a startup, if you have all this data mm-hmm. already, it just makes it easier for the inevitable pivot when the first business model goes bust. Yeah. But you got your customer list, you got and the data. You have, you're feeding your AI algorithms with as right. much deep data as you can give it. And those yeah. are also, I mean, you're th- talking about, let's say, legitimate uses. If you're Cambridge Analytica, the data you need is all of it. Yeah. Because yeah. it's not clear that you have good objects. So I think I, <laughs> we're going to be talking about this yeah. for the next 10, So I have to years. ask about Cambridge. Like, I, I did check the, the page Facebook put up to see what was your data fed to their system by you or any of your friends. And it said for me, no, mm-hmm. which I was thinking like back then, some of my cousins and friends on Facebook will click on anything. <laughs> so I really thought it would have gotten swept up. Mm-hmm. Did any of y'all get uh no, I didn't. Um, okay, good. Well, maybe that's good. I mean, right. if we assume that the tool is working, then that's good. Right. Well, the tool should definitely say if that one app collected your information. Mm-hmm. But back then, the, the entire friend permissions API, which was, yeah. <laughs> that name is your way because it was all about not getting permission from your friends. <laughs> your permission was, I'm on Facebook, so it's okay if my friend can install this stupid app and collect, I guess, whatever information I left public at the time. I mean, part of the problem seems to be that, sh- I mean, sharing data was the whole point of Facebook in the first right. place. Mm-hmm. And so figuring out how to not share data goes against their DNA. Yeah. And I just remember going back to the, you know, 10 year sort of theme, you know, 10 years ago, it was still the Facebook and it was used primarily yeah. by college students. So lonely college guys could see the cute girls and actually figure out where they lived and their phone numbers and things. And I know that because... So it started off creepy and roommates? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. My brother was at the whole time and they had the, the beta test of the college version of Facebook before it was unrolled in like 2006, 2007. And just the way it's gone from that very simple connecting people knowing where they are to what it is today is just it shows that you know there are always these unintended people i don't think would have realized that facebook would have turned into what it became and now where it goes from here is i think another question that no one really has the answer to well part of the power of facebook is its scale it's not the design so it's the fact that so many eyeballs are watching it that they can target advertisements that have impact if Facebook was like Friendster, it you know it wouldn't be a big deal, but it's because of the scale. I heard the name Friendster for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was that even still around ten years ago? <clears throat> I guess it was. Uh, I don't know. It might have been MySpace. Or my, yeah, I remember. A small yeah. network. Well, you know, Facebook yeah. have to mention that. I mean, if we didn't have something like it now, we'd have to invent something like it because it really is useful for me to stay in touch with people who are not in the same place as me, who you know are not necessarily going to be an email, who are not going to be on Twitter, like. 
you know, it, it's nice to see baby pictures from across uh, the country or across the, across the Atlantic Ocean. It's really handy to be able to see, oh, I'm in San Francisco. It's around this weekend. So, And the targeting has, advertised ad targeting has real benefits too. So My mom unsolicited said, I like how the fact the ads get that I, I'm really into like, you know, old English houses and, and, and gardening and whatnot. Hmm. Unsolicited praise for Facebook advertising. Well, there you go. Well, the recommendation engines, that's all AI. Netflix is telling you yep. what you would like to watch next. Amazon's yep. telling you, would you like this product? Yeah. Probably. Yeah, Amazon, they got to work on theirs. Their, their retargeting is really, like, I did a comp for USA Today, I think two years ago, after I, because I live in an older house, I need to buy a toilet seat. I thought, well, what, what's the price for that on Amazon? So do that. Two days later, I was taking a screenshot of a story of mine, and there was an ad for a toilet seat. I'm like, let me reload the page. Toilet seat. Toilet seat. Toilet seat. I'm like, Amazon, I live in a small house. I replace the toilet seat maybe every... This is not a frequent purchase item. I'm not collecting these things. So I wrote a column like, how to turn off Amazon ad retargeting. And that would be great to know for any husband and wife or spousal teams that share a Facebook account. Yeah. I have tried buying gifts and my wife will come in and be like, oh, I, you really think that that's the right color on me? Or, you know, whatever it is. Like, that's come it. on, Amazon. I also like you that they better. seem to want to put everything on their dash buttons. Like you would want to order, have yeah. a toilet seat programmed onto your dash button. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask about a, a sort of a different topic. I mean, it's yeah. related to a platform still, but we maybe haven't heard the phrase in a while, but we've talked about living in a gig economy. And oh, freelancers only about it. Exactly. So that's what I wanted to yeah. ask you. In principle, this economy should be have moved in a way that's really beneficial to you because you already knew how to work it. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but now they have more tools. But on the other hand, you also work in news. So how have these two trends Worked out for him. Best insight I got was from a couple of like papers I read a year or two ago. It's best to think of this as two gig economies. One is the sort of differentiated one where your product is distinct from someone else's. So hopefully, you know, I'll admit that some of my posts and stories are just replacement level, but I try to have provide value above replacement level. But, you know, if you drive for a Lyft or an Uber, you can get a five star rating, but doesn't really give you an edge. Like I, I asked Uber at one point. You know, if there are two drivers that are half a mile away from me, one of them I gave a five-star rating to, the other one I gave a four-star rating, does that factor into who gets to drive me to my next place? And they were like, no. And at the time, Uber didn't even let you tip, so that you were really alienated from the means of your own, from your own labor, I guess, to phrase as Marxist-like as possible. <laughs> and so you have gig economy platforms where you're not, you know, it's not you, it's just a service will appear when you press a button on your phone. But that doesn't really help you out later on. But if you're an artist, if you uh, you know you do some kind of individual labor, you, you make something where it is actually you, the person, then you can do pretty well. I mean, there are lots of other ways the gig economy is not so great since it's tax time. Uh, I'd like to note that uh, tax code is not super friendly. We'll see what it is next year. Apparently I'm going to get that 20% break on my... 1099 income. Of course, it'll probably be offset by the fact that living in Virginia, I will not be able to, the state tax and the property tax, that all goes away. Less in Virginia than in Maryland or DC. Or New Jersey, where, yep, or California, where my in laws live. So are you on net, do you think, a beneficiary of recent changes or because you're in the news, does it outweighed by the, 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 the problems in the, the news? The crappy industry? state of the news yeah, business. Exactly. You know, I think it's worked out okay for me. Like, I, I have 
came into this with a lot of unfair advantages. The the number one thing that has helped me out as a freelancer is if you want to get a good start in freelance journalism, write a technology column for a major American newspaper for 11 years, as I did for the Washington Post. Then leave when no one expects. Boom. It, it's a great big one ad. So I didn't realize it you know, until it actually happened. I had a quick question. So yeah. as a tech journalist, who are some, yeah. who are the tech journalists that you look to? Like, mm-hmm. do you want to get to the bottom of the story or write something? Or do you have like a list of your top, like two or three names of people that you always go to? So there's, there's a handful. I'll give you like names and sites, for instance. So for like tech policy, one set of room for a long time is uh, techdirt.com. This guy, Mike Masnick covers it. He's been writing about issues like intellectual property and privacy and whatnot. And he's barrier based and he actually gets how things happen and don't happen around DC. So, and it's, he's been way ahead of the game on a lot of issues. And he doesn't always write agreements that change people's minds because mm-hmm. people are stubborn around here. Ars Technica is a great site just for general purpose tech coverage, but they're also really sharp on tech policy. They've got a great guy, John Brodkin, who covers telecom policy in the FCC. Like, I cannot hope to keep up with him. Sean Gallagher does some great information security coverage there. Brian Krebs, an old coworker of mine for The Post, he is the, the dean of cybersecurity journalists. So if you're going to come to an opposite conclusion than he has on something, you best have done your research. Do you see demand for tech journalism increasing, or is it about constant? Yeah. A year and a half ago, we didn't have uh, Axios, the, the site founded by the Exploitico types, and they've really done they've done a lot of really good hiring, like Ina Fried in the Bay Area, Scott Rosenberg, who has been writing about this stuff. I remember reading him at like Salon.com in the late 90s. Really knows his stuff. Uh, they have my old uh, post colleague, Kim Hart, editing their tech coverage. What do you think of Axios? I, I have mixed feelings, because on the one hand, they've got great people, like you said, yeah. and they get good stories. On the other hand, I sort of don't like the idea that news is moving to a three-sentence format. Right. Well, you know, I like Twitter, so I have no idea <laughs> about this. Point. <laughs> yeah. When they came out, it was hard to read because the the only faces of it were, you know, like Mike Allen and the other Politico types. And, and Allen, another guy I used to work with at The Post, he can be sort of hard to read sometimes. Like the, their first time I remember seeing other people talking about them was when Allen went to some event at Mar-a-Lago before the inauguration. And he was tweeting out pictures of the spread. And we're all like... Really, Mike? (laughs) Like, this is kind of gross, even by access journalism standards. (laughs) But since then, they've been doing a very good job of, like, trying to figure out what's going on in this White House. Yeah, and I think they, Axios in particular, kind of took the Mike Allen approach of, your bread and butter is the the daily newsletter. I mean, you can read all the three sentences, tweets that you want, but if you want to really digest the news, you need to either get the morning or afternoon ones. So, Ina, as you mentioned, her um, tech newsletter, I've sent around a lot of stuff to this office. Mike Allen, I read his stuff just to keep on top of what's going on yeah. here but yeah it's way too shattering trying to keep up with it on like a day-to-day second by second do, do you see it though as a um as kind of a, a change in the type of business model that's likely to succeed now or is it just its own niche that um so the yeah news business models do need work i mean that's mm-hmm. one big change that's happened over the last 10 years because online ads that industry i don't know if it's their fault but they're not providing enough financial mm-hmm. support And in some ways, online ads are outright harming newspapers when you see how often just the amount of crap that gets onto ad networks, you know, the forced redirect ad where suddenly you're looking at a $100 gift card offer that has taken you off the page entirely. And if you take them up on that, it's some kind of multi-level marketing fraud. And the ad industry doesn't seem to be cleaning up its own act very well. So subscriptions works. They've worked well for the Washington Post. They've worked well for the New York Times. What I worry about is smaller papers like, you know, Denver. The Denver Post is currently getting throttled to death 
by a hedge fund in New York that seems to have no concept of how to run a newspaper, why a newspaper would exist. And, you know, I feel very bad for people who work there, for people who live in Denver who deserve somebody who will tell them what's going on. What you're saying is, I mean, that's consistent with the research I've seen on changes in media, that for national and international news, yeah, yeah their papers are struggling. Some papers are struggling, but basically we're doing fine. There's plenty of information. There's new sources. But for state and local, it's yep. decimated. Yeah, exactly. And having grown up in New Jersey and uh, living in Virginia now, I can tell you a lot of nonsense goes on at state houses. Mm-hmm. You want to have somebody watching what's going on there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. So I have a subscription to the Post here former employer. And in order to get the best deal for the digital access, I get this Sunday paper broken up into Saturday and Sunday. And I usually toss the the dead tree version and just keep the bags because we have a dog. And that way I can, you know, keep it. So I, I'm not sure. you get some value out of it. Yeah, yeah I, I get some great value out of it. But I mean, again, I think it's just so that they can say that their physical circulation is a certain number. I don't even think but, it's that. I mean, you can the you can make more money off print ads online, which is not how it's supposed to be. The whole idea you can, you can target people really precisely. It turns out Facebook Facebook can, Google can, they're doing well at that. The newspapers, and a lot of it is their own fault. Like they, there's tons of missed opportunities. The San Jose Mercury News had a chance to buy Craigslist. Uh, so there's so many steps that could have been wow. taken. Yeah, it's, it's irritating. like Western Union agreeing I mean, not to get into telephony. Yeah. The Post, when I was there, we wasted like two, three years. <laughs> Someone had the idea that the web is too hard. We're going to run our own online service. Which <laughs> It was amazing. We only lost like $50 million on this horrible digital link thing, which was like, you know, AOL, if, if the quick pace of logging in on AOL bothered you, stressed you out too much, digital link would put you right at ease. Yeah. And I think people don't want to be stupid. I think there is a market to inform people. But it's just getting over that hump at finding other business models, whether it's subscriptions, hosting events, you know, some kinds of digital journalism like podcasts. Apparently, you get really good CPMs on those ads. People listen to them. People don't hate them. They haven't been infected by horrible ad networks. I wonder if that's, I wonder why. Do you think it's because people have already self selected into their interests? I guess it's just the, some of it, I guess, just because of the way you record a podcast. You know, programmatic ad insertion is not as easy as it is on a page Mm -hmm. that's put together dynamically. Mm-hmm. Let's get to know since we're on a podcast now. Right. Let's monetize it. <laughs> well, that's all I have. Anything else that you want to talk about while we're here? We yeah, I guess, you know, the podcast? other, we can't sort of ignore how Washington has, has looked at the tech industry because for years, you know, there was no expectation that DC could do anything really great. So the attitude among tech policy types who we're paying attention was let's stop the horrible stuff. Let's stop the Communication Decency Act from reducing the internet to something only fit for children. Let's stop the Stop Online Piracy Act from totally breaking basic internet routing architecture. Uh, and we've gotten to the point where some good bills can advance. You know, the USA Freedom Act curtailed bulk surveillance by the government. On the other hand, some stuff, it's, I had too much fun writing a story for Yahoo! For Groundhog Day, about how many years we've gone without reforming the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which is a joke of a law that no one even tries to use. It's the one that says, you know, if mail is stored more than 180 days, then you can just subpoena it. You don't need to get a warrant or anything. And, and fortunately, all the major providers have seized on one circuit court ruling and said, no, you really need a warrant. <laughs> but even then, where it's obvious the law is a joke, no one pays attention. Year after year, it goes unfixed. Is this because of partisanship or are there other factors? Some of it, like... The SEC is sort of opposed relaxing that because they want to be able to go after, you know, various crooks on Wall Street. But like, it's silly. If something passes on a voice vote in the House, probably you should be able to advance that forward. But it's just no one has really championed it. And I certainly don't expect anything to happen on that in this Congress. 
it's hard to expect much of anything to happen. Yeah, yeah, they, they have the omnibus bill, so it's like now we're just going to try to not lose our elections. But it, it used to be the case when tech was only telecom that the issues, I mean, they were hard fought, but they weren't necessarily partisan. Things, you know, it, it, they were fought uh, along maybe industry lines. I'm not really sure. And then, then with net neutrality, it sort of all became much more partisan. And has that sort of transferred into broader tech policy, do you think? Net neutrality is weird because I am not a both sides guy. Some of it is overheated on both sides. Like mm-hmm. the idea that like Verizon, which I should note owns Yahoo and therefore Yahoo Finance, is going to start censoring political speech so that their subscribers can't see it. It's not going to happen. Right. There isn't even a business model for that. On the other hand, the pro-net neutrality people talking about regulating the internet is the Food and Drug Administration regulating my stomach. That's not how it works. We had this discussion around the time right. of Teddy Roosevelt. It's okay to have government saying, you know, you, you, you must have some standards in an industry. Uh, and, you know, comparing it to socialism or, you know, the, the way China runs its internet, it's ridiculous. So basically, totally overwrought. Yeah. No matter who you're talking about. Yeah. And that's one where Ajit Pai has done some good things with robocalls as FCC chair, but his crusade about restoring things to way that they back were, the way they were back then, you know, this is unlocking the internet and American innovation. Well, like I was covering the FCC in the late nineties and we had really strict regulation of DSL broadband. And in his view of history, that just didn't happen. Well, except that cable was not regulated in yes. the same way. Cable, they never quite figured out what to do with it. Yeah, I don't know. Net neutrality, at this point, I feel like I've been covering it for so long. Like, you could do it Oxford debate style. Tell me to advocate for it or against it. I could probably do a decent job either way. I feel you. I first wrote about it in 2006, and it hasn't gotten more interesting. Yeah. And that brings up another topic, which maybe isn't interesting, but really bothers me. What do you think about the way regulations and laws are titled these days? Like the Internet Freedom Act, Open Internet Order, the, I mean, go back to the Patriot Act. They're titled to obscure debate. Well, you know, SEL is a thing. Uh, you know, I was writing about uh, data breaches the other day, and there's a discussion draft of a bill, and I, I can't remember its name because it doesn't have some snappy acronym like the Puppies oh, Act. Interesting. So, because I go back and look at some of the old ones, and it'll be like the most boring title ever, and I'll think, yeah, yeah that's something I want to read. Yeah, it was a great one, actually. Um, the now, now departing former representative Blake Ferenthal had a bill that would basically clarify that you know you're, you're allowed to tinker with stuff gadgets you own. Oh, yeah, it was right. the You Own Devices Act, Yoda Act. Oh, man. That's Great awesome. work by whatever yeah. staffer came up with that. Of wow. course, it went nowhere like all good tech policy bills. So they, they did try and didn't do. Yes, exactly. Well, thank you for coming in. I think we're wrapping up our time right. here. I feel like we just scratched the surface here. So I'm going to, on behalf of T-Think Minimum, invite you back at some point. We can continue yeah, this conversation. Great. But, yeah, thanks uh, for coming by. Yeah, really thanks for coming it. by. All right. Thank you. Thanks, y'all.